Well, good morning. We are going to go ahead and dismiss the kiddos right now, if that's okay. So kids, if you would like to move toward children's ministry area, that would be great. While that's happening, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 again today. Acts chapter 1. Many of you know that my mom is a nurse. She was telling me the other day that she went into an examination room to fill out the chart on a new patient, and she asked the new patient if he smoked, and he said no, and do you, do you, do you drink? He said no. Do you have any other addictions, any other, any other habits? And the patient said, well, I drink, I drink about a pint of brake fluid every day. And my mom said, well, that sounds like an addiction. And the, the old man said, no, I can stop any time. Uh, if you don't think that's funny, you need to repent. Uh, Acts chapter 1, we're going to con- talk about the continuing work of Christ, the continuing work of Christ in the ascension and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the ascension of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, references this very idea of Jesus' continuing work when it says all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Last week we discussed the ascension of Jesus. We'll continue to talk about the ascension of Jesus today. But we will want to also begin to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how these two things relate. How the Holy Spirit makes the indwelling a reality in our, or the, how the Holy Spirit makes the ascension of Jesus a reality in our lives. Look at verse 4 in Acts chapter 1. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That phrase in verse 4, wait for the promise of the Father. I think we may tend to think when we see that, wait for the promise of the Father, that Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is the Father's promise for us. But if you'll turn your page over to the next chapter, to chapter 2, and look at verse 32, you'll see this, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this verse, Acts 2, 32 and 33, helps us to see that when Jesus says in the previous chapter that the promise of the Father is coming, that the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father, Acts 2 tells us, helps us to see that it is actually the Father's promise to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's coming is actually the Father's promise to Jesus, right? Jesus is ascended, Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is just a good basic gospel illustration. Because what this means, this is a reminder, is that every bit of goodness that we have from the Father is actually Christ's by law. Every bit of grace, every bit of goodness we have from the Father is actually the Father's gift to the Son. And the Son gives us what is His, right? 
The Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father to the, to the Son. And Jesus gives us what he has. Jesus gives us what he has. That's the gospel, right? The basic idea of the gospel is, is that we step in to Christ by faith and receive all of the Father's goodwill toward Jesus. We receive that as unworthy recipients of just grace alone. That's the gospel. We receive what Jesus gets from the Father. So the Holy Spirit coming is actually God's kindness to the Son, and we're just the beneficiaries of that. Not only is the Holy Spirit a good illustration of that basic gospel principle, but the Holy Spirit is actually the empowerment of that very gospel principle. This idea that what it really means to live a Christian life is to live in the benefits of what Christ has received for his obedience what Christ has received for his goodness and his righteousness. That's the basic idea of the Christian life. It's not, it's not really just a set of principles or beliefs. It's really just living in the goodness of Jesus. It's living in the reward of Jesus. It's living in the accomplishments of Jesus. It's living in the righteousness of Jesus, living in the love of Jesus. All of these things that Jesus has are given to us when we place our faith in Jesus, but they're given to us through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit isn't only a gift from Jesus, it's the empowerment. The Holy Spirit is the empowerment, the appropriator of everything that Jesus has. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We want to see how the Holy Spirit is the appropriator of Christ's total victory. Christ's total victory is represented in the ascension. He ascends bodily to the right hand of the Father to rule and to reign over all things. The Holy Spirit comes down to us and appropriates all of the current realities of Jesus in our lives. So the whole, Jesus is working right now. Jesus is reigning right now. And what the Holy Spirit is doing for us right now is both consciously and subconsciously, he is helping us to participate in Christ's current reign, in Christ's current glory. The Holy Spirit's doing that for us this morning. Now, there's so much misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit that I, I, I just, it's just amazing. You try to anticipate all of the potential, um, all of the potential errors uh, you know, as you're teaching on a subject. And I just couldn't possibly anticipate or address all of the potential errors that one could have related to the Holy Spirit. But here's where I find myself often. I know that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. I've known that since I was, you know, five and going to Sunday school. Holy Spirit's a comfort. But I also know this, following him usually takes me out of my comfort zone. So he's the, whole, he's the comforter, but when I follow him, I wind up uncomfortable. I know that the Holy Spirit is the guide, but I know that following him usually makes my midterm future or my immediate future less clear. So if you love comfort and you love control, you'll notice, by the way, I think everyone does, you'll notice that, that obeying the Holy Spirit actually leads you away from the comfort you love and the control you love. So he's the comforter, but he takes me out of my comfort zone, and he's the guide, but when I follow him, uh, my, my five-year plan seems to get incinerated, goes up in smoke. Furthermore, he's the power from God. Our text says that. He's the power from God. But when I follow him, 
I usually wind up feeling weak. So he's the comforter that leads me into discomfort. He's the guide that leads me into uncertainty. And he's the power that leads me into weakness. That's just like functional truth right there. You know, there are a lot of qualifiers to add to that. But that is the basic experience of every human being who follows the Holy Spirit. Whatever people are telling you, that's just the way it is. So how does this work? What, what is the comforter comforting us with exactly? What, where is the guide leading us? And what, what's happening with this power that we're supposed to have when, in fact, it seems to lead to a feeling of weakness? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism says or asks this question. What is my only comfort in life and death? What is my only comfort in life and death? And it's a long answer, but the, but, the, but the basic gist of it is simply this. My only comfort in life and death is Christ. My only comfort in life and death is Christ. That I am Christ's, that Christ is with me and for me and will always be so. That is my only comfort in life and death. So, the idea is this. The Holy Spirit is the comforter because he brings us that particular comfort. Christ. The Holy Spirit is the guide because he leads us to the truth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is power from God because he gives us Christ's power. If Christ isn't your comfort, the Holy Spirit is not going to make you comfortable. If Christ isn't your ultimate goal... The Holy Spirit is not going to be a good guide. It would literally be like hiring a guide to take you around Kansas City and then uh, you fall asleep on the way into the city and wake up and you're in Omaha. Right? Like, what's happened here? You need to understand, the Holy Spirit is a guide for those who want to end up in Christ. The Holy Spirit is a comforter for those who are comforted by Christ. And the Holy Spirit is power for those who have had enough of their own power and are eager to experience the power of God. The Holy Spirit is basically our real-time pipeline, the keystone pipeline, bringing in the glories of Christ in real time into our lives. That's amazing. That's wonderful if the whole Jesus thing is your thing. But if not... Holy Spirit's most certainly not here to make you embedded further in comfort and convenience and control, right? That, anyone who's ever tried to obey the Holy Spirit knows this is true. The Holy Spirit is the appropriator of Christ's victory. Christ is right now ascended, ruling and reigning. He is glorious and true and full of love and power and might. All, he is experiencing a victorious reality at the right hand of the Father. He is mediating on our behalf. He's receiving worship. That's all happening this second. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is to show us and to make it real to us that we're there with him if we're in Christ. We're there with him. That's ours in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's for. Now, you see in the, in the New Testament, the disciples just throwing their bodies around. Guys, if you're a football fan, you know that phrase. They're really throwing their bodies around today. That's, that's the only way to play football, by the way. You know, you just got to just gotta go with total abandon. 
and hope it all works out. So this phrase, throwing their bodies around, really works for the book of Acts. Because you see these disciples, these apostles, right? Jesus basically tells them in our text, go back into the world that just killed me and be my witnesses, right? And they do it. They go back into the world. They're his witnesses, and they're just throwing their bodies around. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, lists a number of the hardships he encounters. He, uh, he, he says, are they servants of Christ? Uh, this is 11, 23 of 2 Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. He's, he says, I'm talking like a madman, and he's referencing his boasting. But he says, I've, I've gone through far greater labors, more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I've received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. So Jesus is, or Paul is throwing his body around, right? Now, I want to make clear about something. This isn't simply suffering that is entering into his life. Um, this, isn't the, this isn't the garden variety rain that falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. This is suffering that Paul can control. This is suffering Paul is choosing. He is choosing to love God's enemies with the gospel. And because he's made that choice and keeps making that choice, he's experiencing the things we just read. If he stops doing that, if he stops loving God's enemies with the gospel, if he stops going into the world that killed Jesus, all of these things stop too. So this is a different kind of suffering than most of us are familiar with because this is a suffering that has a very clear uh, tap you know you can turn it on and off you just decide to not do this anymore and you'd be fine all of these things would turn off which makes us ask not only how paul endures them but how paul consciously chooses them how does he choose discomfort how does he choose weakness what's going on in paul's heart that allows him to throw his body around second corinthians twelve nine. Uh, he says, therefore, this is just kind of the concluding of all of the things he just said. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. What's going on here? How is Paul able to live this life? How is Paul able to choose this life? By the way, every time, it's, it's multiple lashings, right? It's multiple shipwrecks. It's multiple. There's always an opportunity at the end of that latest incident to say, I'm done. <laughs> right? There's, there's, there's always an opportunity for him to decide, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to experience this difficulty anymore. I don't want to go through this suffering any longer. And he can choose multiple opportunities to choose to end this kind of suffering. What's going on? Why is he able to have the faith to continue in this work of being a witness. Well, he wrote 
Philippians 3, 20, 21. Where he said, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul believed at a level that we're going to talk about this, how like we can believe we have these same facts in our brains, right? But they're not motivating us the same way. So, so there's different layers of, of belief. We'll talk about that to this week and also next week. But Paul believes that his citizenship is in heaven and that he is awaiting a savior to return from his ascended reign and when he returns, Paul's lowly body will be transformed into Jesus's likeness, a glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And that's the final idea there is that Paul believes in a Jesus who's really, really, really in charge. Every rock that hits him is not a rock thrown by his enemies. Ultimately, it's a rock allowed by God to strike him in that spot. He believes in this, this, this really high view of God's sovereignty. So Paul doesn't see any of this as an accident. He understands that all of this is actually God's power on display. And he knows that as he presses in to this call to engage in mission, that everything that happens will be under the authority of Jesus, including his death and his resurrection. And this idea that Christ is currently reigning is the idea. It's the big idea that makes abundant life possible. It's, it's the big idea that makes obedience to God's mission possible. It's the big idea that allows us to follow the comforter that makes us uncomfortable. This idea that Jesus is reigning. When Jesus said in uh, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, he says, go out into all the world. The promise is simply this. I am with you always. You'll have my presence Right? And all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I have power over all things. Those are the two truths that can drive a man who I think was basically a careerist. I think Paul was basically a Jewish bureaucrat with a, a particular ardency for, for certain rules. Uh, drove a man who was essentially a bureaucrat, right? A, a, an earnest error-filled Pharisee, drive a man like that from being the one who takes life to, a, to, to one who, who surrenders his life every time he steps into a new city. And he was willing to endure almost no respite, walking into danger, into danger, into danger, into one danger and out of one danger. What's happening there isn't just an accumulation of facts. We have the same facts. What's happening there is that the reign of Jesus is just really real to him. It's just, it's just true at an actionable level. True at an actionable level. True at a level that says it is right and reasonable for me to bet my life on the return of Jesus giving me a body like his. This idea of Jesus reigning is the centerpiece and though I don't think it is 
only about knowledge. I do think it begins with knowledge. Jesus did, after all, tell them, right? He did, after all, tell them that he, all authority had been given to him. It doesn't end with knowing that, but it certainly involves knowing that. So I do want to cover that again as we think about the ascension of Jesus, just to understand the degree to which Jesus reigns. C.S. Lewis does a great job describing the incarnation of Jesus all the way through to the ascension of Jesus. This idea that Jesus has descended to the earth to become like us, to take on flesh so that he could win the whole ball of wax and take it up and rule in perfect authority. So I want to read a couple of things to you uh, really short from, 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 from Clive. Uh, he says, in the Christian story, God descends and reascends. God descends and reascends. And this is what we've seen when we talked last week about the ascension of Jesus and the, uh, the, the coming down of the Spirit. This is, this is the basic rhythm of grace. It's humiliation unto exaltation. It's I go low to get high. I die to raise. A seed falls to the ground and dies so that it becomes much more than a seed. This is the basic rhythm of the Christian life. Lewis says that in Christian story, God descends and reascends. He comes down. Down from the heights of absolute being into space and time. Down into humanity. Down to the very roots and seabed of nature that he created. But he goes down to come up again. And to bring the whole ruined world with him. The apostles had an understanding of Jesus as the great descender and the great ascender. They had an understanding of Jesus as the perfect example of a seed falling to the ground and dying and bearing unbelievable amounts of fruit. They knew Jesus to be proof that when we do humble ourselves, God will lift us up. Lewis describes Jesus in the incarnation and the ascension as a diver. And I think this is just wonderful imagery that just kind of just kind of sparks my imagination as I think about this idea. So I just want to read this to you. I hope it does the same for you. One may think of a diver, he says, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair and gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then back up again, back to the color and the light, his lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. That dripping, precious thing is you and I. And Advent, he says, is when we celebrate his coming down to us. So the apostles had this idea locked in their brains. That Jesus is the great descender and ascender. And that he is proof that you can trust God with your whole life. But here's the question. We know that. But they seem to know it differently. What's going on? How did they act on that? What, what level of knowledge? How, how do they get the level of knowledge that leads to acting? 
Well, how, did the, how, how does this become real? Listen to John 16. If you have your Bibles, and uh, I would, you're going to want to see this, so I would turn there. John 16, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the disciple of Jesus? Verse 14 of John 16. He will glorify me by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. The disciples walked around with a burning fire of courage in their chest. Because... The Holy Spirit was actively giving them what was Jesus's and putting it in their hearts. Yes, illuminating it. Yes, helping them understand the theology behind all of this. But more than simply the theology, they were walking around with the burning fire of Christ's victory, Christ's present victory inside them. Holy Spirit is the appropriator of the victory of Christ in real time. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing for us. The Holy Spirit is here to both consciously and subconsciously. I say subconsciously because I go to Romans 8, where we hear about groanings too deep for words, right? I think there's something going on deep inside of us. The Holy Spirit's work, as it relates to the ascension, as it relates to the whole Christian life, is to give us Christ. Not an idea of Christ, not good thoughts of Christ, to give us Christ, to give us the goodness, the victory, the power, the love, the endurance, the happiness, the confidence, the gusto of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. So Jesus, in our text in Acts 1, he says, this is going to happen. You will receive the promise of the Father. In verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week. So when they come together, they asked the Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons when the Father has fixed by his own authority. Uh, Acts 1.8 is where I'm at right now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way. As you saw him go into heaven. Uh, lock in on verse 11 for a minute. This tells me that the Holy Spirit is necessary to make the ascension the rea reality. This tells me that these disciples, before receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, even though they had just seen Jesus ascend, aren't really 
motivated by it. They're standing up and looking. They're looking up into the heavens. There's sort of an ambiguity about their whole relationship to the ascension of Jesus. It's not clicking. It's certainly not driving them to action. Uh, Two men have to appear and kind of, you know, knock them out of the the, the brain trance that they're in that moment. And just, hey, guys, we're done looking up. Holy Spirit's going to come. Let's go to the next thing. So the ascension in and of itself is wonderful reality. But Jesus has always intended that the Holy Spirit would come. And give us the dynamic vibrancy of Christ's current reign. The Holy Spirit's happy, privileged job is to make the rule and reign of Jesus real to you. That's that's wonderful. It's it's wonderful. That my life could be so transformed by something I can't see. That I would be willing to endure stones being thrown at me. And repeated encounters with death. Those bruises on my arm will be real. I'll be able to see those. That ship going up and down and only because I'm on my way to some other country to share the gospel. That's going to feel real. How is it? That this idea of Jesus fully in charge becomes more real than the bruises on my arm. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the appropriator of all that Christ has and all that Christ is. We, we get to experience our eternal future life in Christ through the Holy Spirit's ministry in our heart today. Now, that's the pitch, okay? That's, the, that's, that's what I want us to want. I hope you want that. I really hope you have the courage to desire courage. I hope you have the courage to desire courage. I hope you are able to see that... that that Paul's life was not abnormal, that, that ours is, that we are woefully uh, underfed. We are anemic when it comes to the mission of God. But that in order to step forward fully into the mission of God, we do need to actually believe at an actionable level that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Well, the Holy Spirit is God's promise for that very thing. And there is a gap in everybody's life in this room between what I just said and what you see in your own life. And I am not going to pretend that it is simply one truth away or one decision away or one sermon away from it all clicking and working for you. If that were true, I'd have told you that the very first time I met you. And I'll also say, I've been thinking a lot about being 20. I'll also say that in my 20s, I really thought that was mostly what I needed, right? It was just some kind of magic switch that was hidden somewhere underneath the machine somewhere. I had to find it. But once I found it, this would all, I would just be in full victory. Everything would be great. It doesn't work that way. But I do want to talk about this gap. And I do not want to pretend 
that there is no gap, nor that the gap, gap is insurmountable. I don't want to say that the apostles or that the age of the apostles was some kind of ridiculous uh, mutation of the Christian life. Neither do I want to say that it's just super easy peasy and we can get this done today before lunch. So let me give you what I think are the two, we'll talk about this more next week, but let me give you what I think are the two basic challenges uh, that, that stand before us as we want more of this and we don't really know how that happens. How does the power come? How, 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 what, what does a relationship with the Holy Spirit look like? Let's start there. Let's start with this. It is indeed a relationship. We are indeed talking about a relationship. The Holy Spirit is not an idea. The Holy Spirit is not an upgrade. The Holy Spirit is not a power pack. It's, 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 it's not a better uh, intake manifold on your car to, get to, to, to give you better horsepower. The Holy Spirit's a person. Um, that means that you will be in a relationship. If you're in Christ, you will be in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And relationships, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the nuance of this in a moment, but relationships just ebb and flow. Relationships get better over time. They ought to. Relationships have highs and lows. Uh, you can be closer or further away, and there are all sorts of nuances to lay into that category. But for now, I just want to create the category. Uh, Holy Spirit is a power in our life, but it's a person, and we have a relationship with this person, and relationships aren't... Uh, as strictly predictable as we'd like them to be. Holy Spirit's not a switch. Um, but the Holy Spirit is not just any person. He's God. And that means he's not a flake. He is a covenantal person. He has a commitment to those who are in Christ that transcends the day-to-day -day realities of your relationship. He is long-suffering. He is faithful. Now, free marriage uh, counseling time. Uh, all the best relationships exhibit both of these qualities. Y y often, uh, popular culture will, will, will cartoonize relationships into one of two categories. And these are the basic two categories of relationships. You'll see the, um, the austere, dead passionless marriage portrayed in the movies where uh, they're, I mean, divorce would be the last thing they would ever do, right? There's, it's not even possible. These, these two will never get divorced. Now, they may never kiss each other, but they'll never get divorced, right? There's this passionless legal commitment. And then on the other hand, you've got another kind of marriage portrayed, which is the, um, the passionate... Chemistry just overflowing everywhere. But, I mean, they are almost divorced like every other Tuesday. Right? And these are the two kind of stereotypical relationships that are presented to us. And not without reason. If you really kind of wanted to just think about, well, how does the church thought about the Holy Spirit? I think that these two categories fit quite nicely or help us to think about how the church has historically thought about the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, you've got the reform types 
who view a relationship with the Holy Spirit as not a relationship. It's a, I signed on the dotted line. It's a covenantal thing. It's a very static, formal thing. The great thing about it is, is that you don't believe it can go anywhere. You've got it forever. But I'm not sure what exactly you've got. Right? It's, this, it's this legal, predictable, formal, you can count on it. It's going to be there thing. On the other side, you've got the, the crazy, you know, charismatics, right? Who, who they are just, it's, it's, it is just full on passion and chemistry and emotion and, and the glorious blaze of personal relationship. Try to talk like a charismatic. Blaze is a good one. Blaze is an important one. The blazing hot, but it's also this extremely unpredictable, uh, you know, one day you might be, the Holy Spirit might be teaching you about Isaiah. And the next day he might be telling you to roll around on the floor. You know, it's this very unpredictable, passionate, unsteady, unstable thing that you can lose any time. And if you offend the Holy Spirit, if he tells you to eat green beans and you eat peace, well, you can count on the fact that you won't hear the Holy Spirit for a while because you've just disobeyed. And these two categories are, are basically the two categories that everybody here is operating out of. One of these two is kind of the, the, the way that we lean. Um, if you've been abused by the, the, the lovesick, rebel without a cause, charismatic relationship with the Holy Spirit, then you might jump over into the very legal, formal, predictable understanding of the Holy Spirit. And if you've kind of just, if you've just kind of glazed over in this legal, formal, predictable thing and you wake up to that, you may jump over here thinking this is... This is the way things are. But the truth is, is that all good relationships have both of those things in moderation, right? Uh, well, that's not, I don't take, take that last sentence back. Not in moderation. That's not the right way to say this. The best marriages feature as its bedrock, absolute 100% covenantal commitment. Not going anywhere. It is... What it is, let no man tear it asunder. But they also pursue growing in love with one another. Progressively, hopefully, turning up the heat. And sometimes it gets harder, but we, we're trying harder to, to constantly love one another with more intensity and sincerity, passion even. So that our relationship with God, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit, but we can just talk about God in general, is both of those things. But we can't, we never want to move into this idea of, of, a, of a passionate, hot relationship with God that doesn't, as its baseline, have this steady, absolute, covenantal commitment. This is really, as an aside, the big idea of sovereign grace churches um, in the business world they say you know competitive advantage or distinctives well the distinctive of sovereign grace would be this very messy attempt to walk in both covenantal and uh, charismatic categories at the same time that that would be the the, the basic uh, distinctive of sovereign grace is the attempt to live in both places and, and I will talk next week about why that's happening, how that happens, not because of, I'm especially interested in promoting sovereign grace, but simply because we do understand, if we really look at scriptures, that that's what we want out of all of our relationships.
We want commitment and we want passion. We want commitment and vitality. Now, we're answering the question. That's a bit of a, an excursus. It's a bit of a side leg on the journey. Well, we're answering the question, I want the courage that Paul had. Right? How, how, I have the knowledge, I think, some of the knowledge. I want the courage. Where does that come from? And I would tell you that it starts by being obedient to the Holy Spirit with what he's shown you today. Because you're in a relationship with someone and constantly telling them no is not the way to experience more out of that relationship. There is indeed a subjective, um, by subjective I mean non-absolute covenantal rock solid. There is indeed a subjective element to your relationship with God that involves you pressing in. It involves you obeying and pressing in as an acknowledgement of a desire. I want more of you. I do want more of you. Very often we'll hear from the, the, uh, the, the extreme passion side of the table that what really needs to happen is you need a second filling of the Holy Spirit. You need more of the Holy Spirit. And I would say that no relationship works that way. No relationship works that way. You don't go to your wife after neglecting forever and say, all right, let's pretend that we're on our honeymoon again. It just doesn't work that way. What we do is we say, I need to begin walking back to. As Jesus says, I was praying about the church of Ephesus, um, return to your first love. What does he say? Do the things you did at first. Like just, just start moving back in that direction. Go back there, repent, seek that. So we're in a very unique place as a church. I hope that you have the courage to want courage. I hope that you see that there is much more to know and experience and enjoy about what Christ is about and who Christ is right now. And I hope you understand that the Holy Spirit has been given to you if you're in Christ as the means by which all of that glory is transmitted and made real. I wouldn't call into question your salvation, nor would I call into question whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. I would just tell you this. It is a relationship. You will receive from the Holy Spirit through that relationship. This is all easier said than done. If you've ever driven on a country road, they're crowned. They have a, a real high peak in the middle. And this helps with drainage and makes the roads last longer. You don't want to fix the road, you know, every few years. And so you crown that road real good. Problem with driving on a crowned road is you're always going in one direction or another. Right? You're always moving into one of the shoulders. Because it's real hard to stay where you need to stay. I want you to be honest with yourself and ask, where are you on the crowned road of a covenantal relationship with the Holy Spirit? Have you veered into formalism where we're mostly talking about the accumulation of facts, the, the assortment of beliefs, are you the two, are you the, the, the long married couple who sits across from each other at the restaurant and doesn't talk to each other anymore? 
Or have you veered into thinking that, oh my goodness, if I don't figure this out, this has to be amazing tomorrow, and if it's not amazing tomorrow, something's wrong, and you're just in this extremely unstable, uh, very human-centric, kind of over-concerned with the relational elements. Where are you? Where have you veered? Unlikely, unlikely that any of us are in the middle of the road like we need to be. Most of us over time will veer in one of these two directions. Biblical preaching, among many other things, the task is to say, this is what we're supposed to be looking like. And how do we get back to that? What I just described as it relates to the apostles throwing their bodies around may look different for you in your life and what God's called you to do, but it ought to look like a life that makes no sense. This is key. Your life ought to look like a life that makes no sense unless you are receiving real-time updates from the throne room of heaven. If your life doesn't look like that, then you need to grow in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. If the only way that someone can explain your life is, um, you know, I think they're hearing voices Right. No, not really. But, I, you know, I think that they actually believe this whole Jesus thing. I think they actually believe that if they fall to a seed, like a seed to the ground and die, they will bear much fruit. I think they actually believe that Jesus is in charge of all of this. I think they actually believe that Jesus has control of all the money in the world. Right. And I believe and I think they actually believe that Jesus is in control of Haiti as it riots today from more government unrest. Or I, I have absolute confidence that, that, that Jesus is in charge of the Middle East. I have absolute confidence that every footstep I were to take onto the mission field would be ordered and protected and guided by Jesus himself. See, that's the real question. Does the life I live look like a life that is connected to the eternal glories of Christ? This dynamic between... Um, the objective and the subjective, this dynamic between the, the, the already and the not yet. This, this, this is the second idea of the kingdom. I, I said last week we were talking about two ideas of the kingdom. Last week it was the material and the spiritual. This week it's the already and the not yet. This thing of unfolding, it shows up in our full relationship with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, in order for you to be a Christian, had to come and raise you from the dead. Had to regenerate you. You were not persuaded into the faith. You were born again. And if you weren't born again, you're not in the faith. That action was not of your will or of uh, your parents' will or of the will of any man, but it was the will of God who comes into a life and uh, entirely apart from us. So, so this is on the objective side. This isn't, this isn't anything we can do. This isn't a, really a relationship issue at this point. The Holy Spirit comes in and, and raises us up and gives us life. And the first kind of light we see is the glory of Christ. And we're given a heart of faith and we we place our faith in Jesus. So that faith is actually a function of the spirit as well. So the very first relationship, very first moment of our relationship with the spirit is fully him, fully initiated by him. He makes us alive. And once he's made a person alive in Christ, they're alive in Christ. And that ain't going to change. There is no D word in the picture here. We are his If we are his, we are his. But we still have work to do, right? 
He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He who began a good work will carry it on. We're supposed to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. There is an objective element. We are his. We are made alive in Christ. But there is a subjective element. We must progressively be sanctified. This shows up actually in the uh, instructions Paul gives regarding communion in 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read this to you. I haven't taught about this very much. I think it fits well into this conversation, and we'll return next week to talk more about this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. But in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is dealing with the ordinance of the Lord's table. The ordinance of the Lord's table is objective. It just is. Jesus did what he did. It is finished. This is my body offered for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's objective historical value here. This is something that doesn't depend on how good you were last Tuesday. This isn't, this isn't about that. The table isn't about that. Let me read the text to you and, and, and let's sort through just quickly this, this objective piece and this subjective piece. He's writing to the Corinthian church, which is, you know, just a group of ornery folks. He says in, in verse 17 of chapter 11, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe in part that's true, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for in eating... Uh, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you do, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So you've got this objective thing. The Lord's table is your touchstone every week to remember the good provision of Jesus that was entirely apart from your performance. It is absolutely a touchstone. It is a memorial. It is a moment for you to say, this is all legit. It's real. And Jesus has died for my sins. It's objective. No matter where you've wandered this week, you can wind up here and return as the prodigal did to feast with his father. That's what this is for. This isn't you have so many demerits this week and you can't partake. Right? 
That's not what this is. This is exactly the opposite of this. The prodigal feast is the moment of repentance for the prodigal. When he actually sits at the table and eats what his father prepared in his joyful return, that's the moment of repentance. If you've wandered all week and you wind up here and you are repentant and want to follow Jesus, this is, this is, this is absolutely for you. The subjective element comes in when, in a variety of ways, you stop asking the question, do I actually want to follow Jesus? Is Christ my comfort? Is Christ the destination that I'm hoping to hit? That I'm aiming for? Is the power of Jesus the power I'm seeking in my life? The subjective questions come in when you simply ask this question, is this home base for me, really? Is this really home base? Is this really the, the, the end point of my repentance? Is this the feast that warms my heart? Because it's the feast with the Father. Or, after careful consideration and maybe a couple decades dabbling in this thing called Jesus, I've realized, I just don't want to live like Paul lived. I, I, just, I just don't want to do that. I've seen what the offering is, and I'm just not interested. The table would not be for those who've decided, I don't want more of God. The table would not be for those who are against moving forward in a relationship with God. As we've said many times, we are a shelter for sinners, but not a shelter for sin. And this table, this table is home base for sinners, but it's not home base for sin. As we think about the subjective and objective related to the Lord's table, we really just have to ask those basic questions. Not that we've arrived or that I have all the faith I need tomorrow to step into Ephesus and get stoned, but that I recognize that's what it looks like. That's what, that's, that's, that's what I want to have. I want to have, however that manifests itself in my life, I want to have that much confidence in Jesus. I want to have that much confidence in Jesus. That's, that's the subjective element of this table. Let me pray for us and then we'll partake.